If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And today, we are going to be talking with Bruce Hopkins about the legal responsibilities of nonprofit boards. Before we do that, though, I want to share with you something really important that we are working on at Successful Nonprofits. And this is something that's been germinating for the last several years. It is no secret that executive directors, when they first start a new executive director job, often find themselves in a difficult spot in part because boards spend a lot of time recruiting the right executive director, but then don't really spend a lot of time providing the onboarding, mentoring, coaching, support, whatever is necessary to make sure that that executive director is successful. And that is why next month we are going to be launching a group coaching opportunity for new executive directors, not first-time executive directors, although you might be at first, not exclusively first-time executive directors, but for people that are starting the position. So if you're in your first 12 months of being an executive director and you want to make sure that you break out of that cycle that causes over half of all executive directors to fail in their first 12 to 18 months, then reach out at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And as I mentioned, though, today, we're not going to be talking about how to help nonprofit executive directors succeed, except, of course, in the ways that strong boards that fulfill their legal responsibilities help executive directors succeed. So we're going to be talking with Bruce Hopkins about the legal responsibilities of nonprofit boards. And I am so excited to be bringing Bruce Hopkins to you in part because he is one of the most seasoned and experienced nonprofit attorneys in the country. What do I mean when I say that? Well, I'm kissing 50. So I turned 50 this year, and he has been practicing nonprofit law for as long as I have been alive. And not only that, but he has been publishing, continuously publishing, a nonprofit newsletter since 1984. Let's 
Think about that for just a minute. In 1984, it was not nearly as easy to publish a nonprofit newsletter as it is today. In 1984, you know, there was no email. There was nothing electronic. So it's not like you thought to yourself, oh, I'm going to just put some words on a screen and I'm going to email them out to anyone who wants them. No, he actually had to get an editor, get a publisher, put all of this together. And again, he has been producing this every year for like 37 years, 38 years, something like that at this point. In addition to his newsletter, he is the author of numerous books and articles. Seriously, I can't even name all of them because it would take too long. But he is the author of numerous books and articles. We're going to be highlighting a few of them today. And one of them, of course, is The Legal Responsibilities of Nonprofit Boards, which, by the way, is in its third edition. Again, if you're not an expert, your book does not make it to the third edition. And he also is a professor of law. Bruce, welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. Thank you, Dolph. Appreciate it. So I will share with you that one of the reasons I felt a strong need to have you on, in addition to the great depth of experience that you have, is how hard and how well you sell and explain the three duties that every single board member of a nonprofit organization has. And I'll share with you, you and I share this in common, Bruce, in that I'm all about these three duties. And I actually do some training on them. And I cannot tell you how many times I'm orienting a board. And I, and just for giggles, I'll be like, okay, who can guess the three duties of all board members? And only once in the last six years have I had even a single person get them. Do, do you do something like that as well? You know, I haven't recently. Uh, of course, a few people have been doing any uh, serious training recently, but I mean, I have, I have to some degree over the years, but actually the, the main focus of my practice is more on the tax law aspects of nonprofit law. But I've been working with BoardSource forever and enjoyed that organization very much. And they asked me, obviously, years ago to start publishing this book with them. And so I do a fair amount of work in this area with my clients, more than, than uh, training per se. But I sure, I've done it, but just not recently. I will also share with you the one person who was able to name all three duties was actually an attorney who was also a trust officer at a national bank. And I was like, okay, yeah, you cheated. You already knew what they were. So let's start to unpack these. Wh which duty do you want us to talk about first? Well, we normally start out with the duty of uh, care. So let's go ahead and, and start that. As you were pointing out, these are very fundamental duties. They've been in the law forever. They're, they're really uh, common law principles uh, derived from the uh, English law, mostly around trust. So we're talking centuries of development of law here. Today, a lot of this is uh, codified, and uh, obviously it's reflected in a lot of court opinions. But the underlying principles, you know, pretty much the same. It's got some modern twist to them and everything, but the underlying concept is is uh, is pretty much the same as it's always been. So, you want to jump into the first one? Sure, let's jump into care. Jump into care. Well, what we're talking about here is the requirement, really, of a board member to be prepared. You know, the word care 
in this context means care about the position. I mean, it obviously means care about the organization, but it means taking the position seriously. And if there's any one word that I would pick to talk about today with you, it would be the word fiduciary. And that word too goes back a long way. And you mentioned your trust officer at the bank. Well, that individual is a fiduciary. In fact, that was one of the original types of fiduciaries. And today that term has been expanded a lot to include board members and frankly, lawyers and certain other people of that ilk. And so that's what the word care means in this context is caring about the organization, caring about the position. And what does that mean? Well, it essentially means to be prepared. So in the book, uh, I have uh, my list. And shall we just go down the list briefly and, and talk about those? Absolutely. Probably the most important one of the batch is, is to participate, to attend board meetings, ask questions, which, by the way, entails a certain amount of preparation in advance. So the board member should uh, review the agenda, obviously, and if there are reports that are going to be presented at the meeting, committee reports and that kind of thing, those should be obviously read, reviewed, thought about in advance. There certainly is nothing wrong with uh, obtaining information from other sources, if need be. I mean, if there's going to be some talk about some issue involving the organization's program, or even legal issues for that matter, the board member can certainly go outside the bounds of what he or she has been provided. Policies, we can talk a little bit more about policies, I suppose, during the course of our time together. But today, policies are more important than they've ever been. And by policies, I mean documents like conflict of interest policies and document retention policies and that kind of thing. And the board members should be familiar with those. And of course, the bylaws and the organizing documents. And And if I can just jump in, Bruce, that's also part of how I think these three duties overlap a little bit. And so like policies are also about obedience because, you know, nonprofit board members have to obey the bylaws and have to obey the organizational policies and also about loyalty because, you know, the conflict of interest policy, that's all about loyalty. So I just wanted to kind of jump in and and point out that a lot of these sort of overlap. Well, that's right. And certainly that's true with policies. I mean, as you, as you pointed out, the policies relate to more than one, more than one. But uh, that is all on the list we ought to look at. There's one item here on the list. Um, I always wonder about this, if I should have even put it on the list. It's the one about ensuring compliance with federal, state, and local law. Well, even for someone who is a lawyer, that's a tough task because there's a lot of law out there that applies to nonprofits. If you're not a lawyer, how can you possibly do that? And in the real world, probably can't. But I think what is important here is that the board member, lawyer or not, be familiar with some basic legal documents. And that would be, as you pointed out, the articles and the bylaws, the annual return uh, that's filed with the IRS. We may get a chance to talk about that. The annual report that's filed with the state. At least have a copy and look at it so that you have some familiarity with it. I mean, but it really, we'll talk more about duty of, uh, 
obedience later, but for a non-lawyer in particular to be aware of all applicable law, federal, state, and local, it's not going to happen. It's not possible. So that's my checklist, basically, for the duty of care. I love that checklist. And it's interesting when I'm presenting duty of care to boards, one of the things that some people will say to me is, well, how do I know whether or not I'm meeting it? And kind of what I will say is, for me, I think what it boils down to is, if this was your own business or your own household, are you caring for it? Are you governing it as well or better than you would, assuming you you do that well with your own business or your own household, as well as you would with your own business? Well, that is true. But of course, that overlaps into the duty of loyalty as well. It does. Oh, it sure does. <laughs> and the duty of loyalty gets into something that we talk about in the tax law a lot. You know, we talked a lot about private benefit and private endowment and self-dealing and all that kind of thing. And really what the duty of loyalty means is that from the board member's functioning standpoint, the interests of the board and the, and the organization come first. And obviously the board member ought not to do things that somehow manipulate or abuse the position so that the outcome is benefiting is 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 a benefit to the board member personally as opposed to the organization so in the uh, list here one of the things i talk about is maintaining the confidentiality of information that that is something that i think is very important and often is forgotten about i think people don't realize sometimes they talk about the organization outside the scope of the board meeting and with other people, there can be confidential information and that confidentiality ought to be respected. I'm not saying the nonprofit ought to be turned into a secret society, but you know, there are, there are certain things that ought not to be talked about outside the, outside the boardroom. Absolutely. And I mean, if I can give a couple examples, I mean, so as an example, if you're a board member and you happen to be friends with a staff member, you can't have conversations with that staff member about what happened inside the board meeting. You just can't. You can't say, well, you know, we discussed this vigorously and three people really were opposed to it, but gosh, the executive director and the board chair really wanted it, so it happened. Yeah, I agree with that. One of my favorite topics is conflicts of interest. Lawyer, I, I find it fascinating because the duty of loyalty means that conflicts are supposed to be avoided, but in the real world, that's often difficult. And one of the great perceptions that I've noticed over the years is that most people, at least that are not lawyers, equate a conflict of interest with something improper, maybe even illegal. Or as an example, a conflict of interest and self-dealing are the same thing or a conflict of interest and private benefit is the same thing. And that, that is not true. Uh, often these conflicts are unavoidable. They're innocent. And the key is not necessarily to avoid them, but to disclose them. And by disclose, I mean to the board, or at least a committee of the board. And that's what a conflict of interest policy really is about, is to ferret out conflicts that board members may have and get them out there so the rest of the board can understand them. And if the board is comfortable with the arrangement, then fine. But if it's hidden, then there's always concern that somebody on the outside is going to find out about it and raise a question. And, and of course, one of my favorites within that topic 
is a lawyer sitting on the board of a client. That is inherently a conflict of interest. Now, it's a very common practice. And in many ways, it's, very, it's beneficial to the organization because they get free legal advice for one thing. But it does put the lawyer in an awkward spot. And that's why I've stopped doing it. I've absolutely, years ago, I quit serving on client boards because I don't want to give advice to myself. Sometimes in the dead of night I do, but I don't want to do it as a board member. And so that's, that, that's inherently a conflict. But again, it, you know, the accountants on the board, maybe a fundraising consultants on the board, you know, maybe a, a bank, like you mentioned, trust officer may be on the board. Very, very common practices, but they are conflicts if the organization is doing business with that particular law firm or accounting firm or bank. Right. And I think you would probably agree that it's a best practice for boards to ask all members to disclose conflicts of interest once a year. Well, that's that's right. And the conflict of interest policy that the IRS advocates quite vigorously, actually, I mean, they've, they've even drafted one, as you probably know, that they use as a prototype, requires an annual questionnaire where the pertinent questions are asked and the, the disclosure made annually. And and is it your recommendation, and I know you mentioned sometimes those conflicts are reviewed and decided by a committee of the board and sometimes by the full board. Do you have a recommendation for the way those conflict of interest disclosures are handled after someone has identified themselves as having one? Well, I'll tell you, on that one, you just touched on a very fundamental problem that comes up a lot, and that's the size of the board. And frankly, the larger the board, the more unwieldy this kind of thing can be. So if if it's a fairly intimate group, you know, five, maybe seven, nine at the most, you could probably do it at the full board level. If it gets to be at the point where the board is much larger than that, that function might want to be delegated to an executive committee. I've not seen it often done to a committee that's just set up for that purpose, but the executive committee would work. So normally on the executive committee would be the president, the secretary, the treasurer, maybe a couple of other individuals who have some ex officio position, and the review could be done at that level. And then if there's a problem or a perceived problem, potential problem, uh, that committee could take it to the full board. So I think it just depends on the overall size of the board, because I think the review group ought to be relatively small. You know, there are politics everywhere and politics can occur on boards. And you have a 50 person board and this kind of thing is tossed to that group. It could be a problem. So, Bruce, I'm going to throw another wrinkle into this, because like you, I think I think nonprofits dealing with conflicts of interest among board members is critically important. So let's say it goes to the executive committee, but the board chair or the board vice chair or the treasurer or secretary is the person that's disclosed the conflict. Is it okay for them just to recuse themselves from that conversation at the committee level, or should they punt that to another committee that this person does not does not sit on? No, I think it should go to the same committee. I think the procedure, the proper procedure is to have that individual participate in the discussion at the outset, explain the conflict, explain why they're in this position, explain why it's beneficial to the organization, assuming that's the case, and then leave. Then leave the meeting. Maybe answer questions 
and then leave and not participate in further discussion and voting and that kind of thing. That's the best way to handle it, in my judgment. Makes sense. I, I just had to ask because oftentimes your officers are the people who are most committed, who are your most committed board members. And so they're also the ones who will say, oh, my marketing firm will do this at an 80% discount, but now they've got a conflict of interest. Yeah, that's exactly right. But lurking in the background, you know, this is in a way outside the scope of what we're talking about, is always the federal tax law. Because as I mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, the doctrine of private enormment and excess benefit transactions and private benefit, and if it's a private foundation, self-dealing rules are overlays. And in some cases where you have a situation you just described, that can be a, a tax law problem as well as a nonprofit governance problem. Oh, wow. Okay. Can you say some more about that? Sure. I mean, let's say it's a private foundation and uh, the private foundation has just purchased an office building for itself and the board is deciding on uh, administrative managerial expenses. And one of the things they have to do is pick a company that will come in and perform janitorial services at the end of every day. And guess what? It just so happens on the board is an owner, 100% owner of a janitorial services company. And that person says exactly what you just said. I'll have the company provide services to the foundation for half of the market rate. It's a great deal for the foundation. Everybody assumes that even though technically it's a conflict, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful benefit for the organization. And so they approve it. Now, that would be an act of self-dealing. That would give rise to tax law penalties and so forth. And so to me, those tax penalties are far more important to worry about than a conflict of interest matter. So sometimes the law will take over, if you will, and will will lead to the correction of that problem, and you don't even get into the conflict of interest situation. But that same scenario in a public charity probably could be tolerated. Interesting. Okay. I appreciate you diving into that. Thank you. That was really helpful. And then we have the duty of obedience. So this is another one of your overlaps. This does overlap with the duty of care because obedience means obedience to the law, and obedience to the organization's own documents. Again, articles, bylaws, policies. And I'm looking here at the book and it says, you know, make, ensuring that the organization is in compliance with all um, laws that apply to the organization, federal, state, and local. I, over the years, have seen many, many situations where that rule is violated, and in some cases, knowingly. And let me say that when that rule is knowingly violated by the board, board members end up with significantly more liability than they normally have. Well, absolutely. The key word there is knowing, you know, knowing participation. It's, now, as you know, well, you know, it, it, ignorance of the law is not an excuse, but in a way it is in this context. If you really didn't know that there was a problem, I think from a, from a governance point of view, the board member would not be faulted. But deliberate violation of a law, either because it's too costly to comply with it, or they just don't like it, or they, or they, um, they just think the resources of the organization ought to be devoted elsewhere, 
that's a, a very awkward position. And I'll tell you where I see this a lot is in fundraising. Fundraising regulation. You take a charity that's fundraising in every state, is that charity registered and granted a permit in every state? Some are, some aren't, but it even gets worse because a lot of counties have ordinances, cities have ordinances. There are tens of thousands of those bodies of law out there. And I don't think there's any organization in the country that can possibly take the time or afford the expense of complying with and getting registered under every single one of those statutes. So again, this is, this is an objective, this is a goal, but it does put people in an awkward position if they sort of know in their heart that some particular law ought to be complied with and the organization is not doing it. And I will say, I mean, one of the real world ways I've seen this impact some boards are, for example, if the organization is not paying its payroll taxes or not filing its 990s and the board is aware of that. Well, you know, when the IRS comes a knocking, they they come and they talk to these board members. Well, yeah, but you've touched on a couple of areas where there are specific law penalties. I mean, if you don't file the 990 or don't file it on time, there are penalties. Now, those penalties don't fall on the board members. They fall on the organization. With one exception, you mentioned payroll taxes. And I talk about this a little bit in the book because that is one area, and and this is codified, by the way, that is one area where a board member, particularly if he or she is an officer like the treasurer or head of the finance committee and is deeply involved in the financial operations of the organization and the taxes are not timely paid or even worse, not paid at all, the individual can be personally liable for those taxes. And for an organization of any size, that can be a considerable sum, particularly if it's transpired over a few years. Right. And I'll share with you, like, I take that so seriously that I actually recommend to board treasurers that once a year, they ask to see the payroll records. They ask to see, okay, you know, I I need to know that our quarterlies, our 941s are being filed and our 940s being filed, and I need to see it because otherwise they don't have that assurance. I'd love for you to weigh in. I've never, I've not necessarily thought it's important that they do it, you know, every, you know, that they look at payroll records every month, but at least once a year, just so they can be assured and they can say, I did my due diligence. Yep. That's exactly right. The other thing that I have noticed, and I just noticed this from a media perspective, whenever I, and I live in Atlanta now, and our major paper is the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. So whenever I see the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, or I subscribe to the New York Times, the New York Times, and and I read an article about a state attorney general investigating a nonprofit, almost every single one that I see is because the board breached one of these three duties, the duty of care, the duty of loyalty, or the duty of obedience. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. In, in fact, um, I said probably the most important word in the book is fiduciary. I think I'll go with the second most important word in the book is liability. And one of the things I do in the book is focus on things that should be done, can be done, to minimize liability. And uh, the first one is the obvious one, and that is to not get in trouble in the first place, which is easier said than done, I suppose. Uh, Proactive, if you will, if that's not too hackneyed a a word anymore. 
And you serve, the board member serves that interest, serves in a proactive way, as you said, by adhering to these duties. And that's, that's the first thing to do. You can talk about insurance and immunities and, and indemnifications and incorporation and all those kinds of things. But the first thing to focus on is the duties and to follow those duties and not get the board member in that position to begin with where there's a violation. Right. And for me, I think kind of what it boils down to is if as a board member, if I don't have the time or the inclination to do the work and show up at the meeting, so read my meeting packet, if I'm an officer, attend additional meetings, ask for additional information, and show up at meetings and make judicious decisions, I shouldn't be on the board. That is, there's no question about that. And you raise with that comment a very important point. You know, board service today is a lot different than it was two or three decades ago. In the old days, people would just show up for a meeting and listen to reports and then go to lunch. Those days are gone. And I'm sure that that pattern still happens. But legally, it should be a lot more going on than just listening to reports and then repairing to lunch. And so it, it requires the preparation that I talked about, participation in the meetings, and as you said, work on committees and that kind of thing in between board meetings and serving perhaps as an officer. It's a serious business. There's no question about it. And it can be it can be extremely time consuming. Right. Oh, absolutely. And and I will also say that one of the areas that I think boards so often fall short on is, and this obviously is kind of all three of the duties, but their bylaws. So, you know, so the bylaws lay out, okay, you have to term out after three terms, or the bylaws lay out that a quorum means 50 plus one, whatever it is the bylaws lay out. And then for whatever reason, the board just chooses to ignore some portions of its bylaws. Oh, well, you know, you know, Dolph's been such a great board member, we should really let him have a fourth term. Well, the bylaws won't let Dolph have a fourth term. Right, 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 right. yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's true. Right, yeah. well, Bruce, I have, so thankful that you've come on to talk about the duties of care, loyalty, and obedience. I've got to ask you the off-the-map question. And this off-the-map question is really kind of on the edge of the map. You are not just a well-known nonprofit attorney with five decades of experience. You are also a poet. And I read a nine-page poem of yours that I think is called something like Ode to the 990. <laughs> so you got to tell me about your poetry. Well, I've got two published books of poetry. They're all obviously on nonprofit law. Some of the poetry is probably stretching the definition of that term. Uh, I've never had any formal training as a poet. And this started a few years ago. I actually went, uh, there was a friend of mine that, that published a book of poetry, and I went to a, an event where he was promoting the book and reading for some of his poetry, and somehow he infected my brain, and I, and I started to write poems about different aspects of nonprofit law. I'm actually working on a third book right now uh, of poetry, you know, with the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was enacted at the end of 2017, gave the nonprofit world a lot of new law, most of it pretty hard on the nonprofit sector, as you probably know. And so I've been writing poems about some of those statutes, the excess compensation 
tax and the tax on college and university endowments and so forth. And, and you mentioned the 990. I've actually had to go back. I, I've gone back and I've started to, to redo <laughs> the poem on the 990 because the version now that's out that has to be filed electronically is somewhat different than the one that I first uh, wrote about in the ode. So I've got to revise my ode. But um, it takes some time to do that. And, and I find myself with less and less time because I'm trying to do other things as well. But I do find it kind of entertaining sometimes to, to write those poems. So I'm, I'm, I'm working on a third collection. So do you have a favorite poem? I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't thought about that one in a while. If I went back and looked, which I actually haven't done in a while, I probably could pluck out. If I'd known in advance you were going to ask me that, I would have, uh, I would have uh, gone back to look. There are probably a couple in there that I am particularly fond of, but uh, certainly not in a position to recite one. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was not going to ask you to recite one because I know that there, I've, I've read one of your books of poetry. I know they're pages and pages long. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for coming on today. And listeners, I want to make sure that you are able to get more information about Bruce. And so there's two URLs I want to share with you. The first is brucerhopkinslaw.com. And the second is brucerhopkinsbooks.com. Now, here's some things you need to be looking for when you go to those websites. The first is on his website, he offers a free, that's right, free book that you can download that is called How to Start a Nonprofit Organization Legally. I'll share with you that Bruce is also working on a new edition. So download this one, come back in about six months or 12 months, and make sure you get the, the new edition of that book. Additionally, and Bruce had kind of referenced this, he has worked with BoardSource for quite some time now on his book, Legal Responsibilities of Nonprofit Boards. It's a short read. I think it's a little less than 100 pages long, but it's super important if as a board member, you care about doing this job well and doing it legally. It is currently in the third edition. It is a popular, popular book. Hey, Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Happy to do it. Good to talk with you. Appreciate it. Listeners, if you missed those URLs, do not fear, because I know that you were busy writing poetry of your own. You're like, oh yeah, I'm a CFO. I'm going to write some CFO poetry now. So you keep on writing that poetry and know that you can go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com to get Bruce's URLs, and we'll also link to the legal responsibilities of nonprofit boards as well. And don't forget, listeners, that if you are an executive director and you are in your first 12 months in a new position, consider our coaching group. The first 12 to 18 months are the toughest for an executive director, and it is the period in which they are most likely to wash out. So go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and check out our coaching group that is going to start next month. If you enjoyed this episode with Bruce, I want you to check out episodes 144 and 145 on recruiting great board members. And I also want you to check out episode 60, Engage Your Board with Rob Acton. Quick secret, we are about to have Rob Acton back on the podcast in a few months. So listen to episode 60 and tune in in a few months so that you can get more great words of wisdom from Rob Acton. 
That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And just a quick reminder that I am not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This show is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. And let me give you a secret. If that's what you need, you should find a qualified, licensed professional and talk to them.